Hello, fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts. This is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for another episode of Positively Dog-Powered. Today, I've got a great panel sitting in front of me that you guys will not be able to see because you're just listening to, but we're going to talk all about a topic we have not talked about yet on this podcast, which is dogs with disabilities. There's a lot of dogs out there that people share their lives with, and some of them might have some physical or mental limitations, but getting outside and enjoying the outdoors is still really important for these dogs. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of these limitations, some of the challenges that come along with them, as well as some of the ways that you can start to get out with your dog. So before we get started today, I'd like to go around and have my panel introduce themselves. Erin, would you like to get us started with that? Sure. My name is Erin Marion, and I own and operate Down to Earth Dog Lady. I have been working with dogs for the past 12 years. I am a certified professional dog trainer and a Karen Pryor Clicker training partner and graduate. Um, And I specialize in working with dogs who are deaf, blind, or both. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Abby Johnson. I am a CPDTKA and also an FDM, which stands for Family Dog Mediator. Um, I have two small dogs of my own, so I operate more so in the small dog realm, and I'm also more so of a pet dog trainer. Um, so I work with a lot of pet people on common pet problems. One of my dogs is also a tripod, so I have a little bit of experience with dogs who have some physical limitations. And I'm really happy to be here. Hey, I'm Katie Burrell. Um, I am a veterinary assistant and have four rescue mutts of my own. One of them is also a tripod. Um, so I have a little bit of experience with the physical limitations. And then uh, actually my other dog was blind in one eye until recently. So more experience there. Um, so I like just working with animals in the veterinary setting and then through my own dogs, I've kind of gotten into training and working with them in that aspect. We've got an awesome panel here, everybody from behavior to medical and everybody owns dogs that have some limitations. So we'll have a nice discussion here today, hopefully. Before we get started into that, I do want to put a brief disclaimer on this episode that while we are professionals in our industry and we are sharing some tips for you today, this episode should not replace any medical guidance that you get from your own veterinary team, your own rehabilitation team. And a lot of these dogs that might have physical or mental you know, limitations are going to need a big team around them. They're going to need a team of trainers. They're going to need veterinary assistants, veterinarians, and rehab professionals. So if you need some assistance finding those professionals for your dogs, we are going to include some links to help you with that in the show notes. Um, if you do need some help finding that team to support you. So as we get started today, I want to talk a little bit about some of the different disabilities that we might see in our dogs. And of course, this is not going to be extensive, but there are some things that we're going to talk a little bit about today based on the panel that we have with us. So Erin, why don't you get us started? Because I know that you work specifically with dogs that might have hearing impairments or visual impairments. Talk to us about kind of the range that can be included in that and some of the challenges that you might see with that. Yeah, so uh, dogs can be 
born, it can be congenital from, they can be deaf and blind from bad, simply bad breeding, neurological issues. Katie might even also be able to share some thoughts on this as well. Dogs can have um, ocular issues at any age. Uh, they can go blind as some, some is breed specific. Same with deafness. Uh, it could be due to accident. Again, they could be born into it. A lot of the clients that I see are what you call a double merle, um, or back in the day, they used to be called a lethal white. Um, and that's, yeah, a terrible term. I'm very glad that we changed that. Um, and those are going to be your dogs who were born merle to merle. So, I do see a lot of herding breeds, Great Danes, Dachshunds, Boxers, things like that um, in my repertoire. Um, so, uh, or they could be born like my own dog, Clark, who is, uh, he's a rough coat collie. He's, um, as he's a sable. And so he was just simply born without eyes because that line my guess, and again, like Chelsea proclaimed, this isn't anything medical, um, but my guess is just because of the breed, the standards is to have almond-shaped small eyes, and over time, they want, I'm guessing you could even just breed it out, really, if, if not done well enough. So um, I also have a double merle, so my dog Darla is um, fully blind and partially deaf. She can hear a little bit more out of one ear and none out of the other. Um, and that was, again, from a Merle to Merle accidental breeding. So that's my experience as I deal a lot with puppies. I deal with rescues that get them in um, from, again, congenital issues. I do have clients, though, that uh, I have my senior crew who are like my 14 and 16-year-old pugs who are losing their eyesight and, and losing their hearing and their parents are looking to still find ways to communicate with them so it's such a wide range with so many options of what could I don't want to say what could go wrong because that's not how I want to see it but what could happen to our dogs and it's always um, important to just prepare if you're heading in that direction and not wait till till your dog does go fully deaf or blind absolutely you know not having full ability to see or hear all the way up to completely not being able to see or hear obviously impacts, um, you know, a dog's day to day, what they're doing, how they perceive the world. We can also have changes in that perception based on some physical impairments, which Katie, I imagine that you see somewhat in the veterinary world, you know, dogs that might come in with something autoimmune related or something physical, either, you know, a deformity or, uh, weakness in one limb. How do you, how often do you see that in the veterinary world? Yeah, so we definitely see it pretty often. Um, most just, so I currently work in an ER setting um, and a lot of the times, especially with the eye relations or like limb differences, um, we're seeing them come in with either like an eye in injury or some sort of like, oftentimes we have dogs get into situations where they're hit by a car or something like that. And they're definitely like, not always coming out the same on the other side, um, either like, you know, they're not able to use the leg the same or like with my dog, she, when I found her was on the side of the road and we ended up amputating her leg um, just because it was so badly damaged. Um, and that's how she ended up being a tripod. So you definitely see that a lot. And then like Aaron had mentioned with the different breeds that come in, we see, quite often, like with your cavies and things like that, who are coming in, they'll have eye issues. Um, and so sometimes that's kind of how you end up with it too. So, yeah, I think it's interesting that it can be something that is 
both genetic and something that can both be aftermath of an accident, you know, and, and there can be such a variety of injuries or impairments that a dog can have. And that can impact how we train them. It can impact their needs. It can also impact how they're feeling mentally and emotionally based on those impairments. Abby, I know from the pet dog world, you do a lot of training, right? And we have to, of course, we work on training specific skills or training specific behaviors, but we also have to do some behavior modification to deal with the emotional aftermath of, you know, some of these traumas. How often do you see kind of a correlation between, you know, something physical going on and something emotional going on? way more often than people typically think. Um, so that's something that I really have to push home to clients a lot is that how our dogs are feeling on a physiological level and how they're feeling on an emotional level are extremely interconnected. Um, so anytime a dog has gone through any kind of you know medical procedure or is going through some kind of long-term illness or injury, we have to be extremely cognizant of the fact that their behavior is not going to be how it may normally be whenever they're feeling their best. Um, so that's something that I had to learn pretty quickly with my dog, Phoebe. Whenever I initially took her home, she was my foster fail. So I was just supposed to <laughs> um, keep her while she was recovering from her invitation, but now it is, you know, several years later and she is still my dog. Um, <laughs> and so with her, I really found that experience to be extremely enlightening whenever I experienced it firsthand. Right. So I took her home initially and I thought to myself, you know, this is such a lovely, wonderful, um, you know, quiet little calm dog while she was recovering, you know, a few days came into it. She started to feel a little more comfortable with me. And all of a sudden I realized she's actually a fearful, reactive, you know, emotional mess basically that we're still working on today. She's a million times better, but there's always some lasting effects with that. Um, so I see that a lot and that's something that I really try to drive home with clients, um, especially if there are issues regarding a dog who's developing a disability or a physical limitation, there are not necessarily always going to be opportunities to do the same things that they did before that started to happen to them or before their body started to degenerate. So finding those alternatives for those kind of dogs and making sure that their needs are still being met, they still have outlets for the things that they love to do, but maybe in kind of an adjusted way is a really good way to go forward from there. I'm glad you brought up to that idea of making sure their needs are met. Cause that's something obviously from both a veterinary and a training standpoint, we talk about a lot right? There are certain needs that an animal, including humans have to have in order, you know, we need to feel safe. We need to have food and water. We need to have shelter. And a lot of that feeling safe can be impacted when we have some kind of impairment or disability going on, right? From both a human standpoint and a dog standpoint. And so oftentimes, you know, as trainers, we get called in to teach behaviors, right? Like we want to get rid of barking or we want to teach our dog how to walk on a loose leash. And while we can train those behaviors and we do help clients with those behaviors, we also have to address how the dog is feeling emotionally, because if the dog is not feeling safe, you know, we might not be able to address that barking right off the bat. There might be other things that we need to address in order to do that from an emotional standpoint. I know Aaron, you deal with that quite a bit, mm -hmm. you know, educating the people on how to do that. And trying to figure out 
you know, what the dog might need can be a pretty complicated process. And it, for dogs who are deaf and blind, you have to think of it so outside of the box of your regular, I have a case right now who they just want him to walk nicely on a leash um, because he he's deaf and blind and he gets every, just the behavior or the um, antecedent of just putting the harness on stimulates this entire process of chaotic motion, vocalization. So when we had to start with loose leash walking, it wasn't even the, it wasn't even the outside part yet. You know, we had to start with the equipment and start with just a brand new harness, a brand new tactile sensation and walking in the house under threshold. I mean, it's, I'm reading currently reading this book by Ed Young and it's called An Immense World and it's talking all about about it talks all about animal senses and what they have adapted to or what they've been using that's special to them and he jokes that we're just a bunch of giant chemical sacks and everything around us is just a giant chemical sack for our dog to just investigate. And for deaf and blind dogs, that is so much of their communication um, and their way to process their environment that to walk nicely on a loose leash for a deaf and blind dog can sometimes be um, seem so difficult for the owner but if we see it from or the guardian if we see it from the deaf and blind dog's point of view they're just like living life and enjoying it you know so it's it's really interesting how you really do have to think of all the other senses and all of the other things outside of your personal world to be able to understand what they could be going through or processing I think on top of that too, being able to really clearly um, read dog body language and being really mindful about your power of observation, right? Because I think oftentimes if we have certain expectations and those expectations might be based on other dogs we've had in our past, right? How we've trained other dogs or worked with other dogs, even if we had another dog with a disability, we can kind of set this expectation in our mind of our dog should be doing X, Y, and Z or should be able to do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> I think sometimes that can get in our way in training because we're putting pressure on a dog, right? And we're not looking at that individual dog and really making sure that our training plan is customized for that individual dog and that individual need. Or even the opposite of feeling a lot in the beginning, I have a lot of clients that feel so bad for their dog. Um, it engulfs their entire um, livelihood to the point where it hinders the dog's ability to learn. Maybe thinking that, oh, the, you know, this poor dog or this dog has this problem. It can't do all of those other things, which obviously as trainers, and in vet techs, like we know that not to be the case, but oftentimes if that's their first experience with a dog like that, they might not understand that. Exactly. I know, Abby, you are big time into advocating for small dogs and including your tripod in terms of making sure that people understand just because they might have, you know, this disability or they might be small doesn't mean they aren't really dogs. Talk to us a little bit about some of those kind of, um, misconceptions that people might have? 
Yep, absolutely. Um, going off of what Aaron said, I really resonated with that, especially just with my own personal dog, Phoebe. Um, because a lot of times people don't actually, because she's so close to the ground, they don't actually notice that she's a tripod until we've been standing there talking for five minutes. And then they look down, they go, oh my gosh, right? So at first it was no problem. She's just a regular everyday dog. They're like, oh, she's cute, you know, whatever. And then they notice that she's a tripod and all of a sudden the whole conversation and the whole demeanor changes and they have, they feel so bad for her. And they're like, this is just the worst thing that could have ever happened to her losing this leg. And it's always funny to me because it's such a non-issue in her day-to-day -day life that like, I forget that she's different all the time. And so I'm always surprised and I always think it's kind of funny whenever people are so taken aback by it um because for the most part Phoebe does everything that any other dog of any size and any other dog with all four of their legs does um only things that I do differently is I just make sure that her exercise is a little bit more low impact and I use um some more like proactive care methods but other than that, she goes hiking with me. Um, we do a whole lot of off-leash time in the woods whenever we can find a nice, safe area to do so. Um, that's something that I'm a really, really big advocate of. I really love to do it with my dogs and she has a blast. So like we're, you know, running through the woods and there's logs in the trail. There's, you know, these steep hills that she's to climb up in. She's diving into ditches, you know, chasing after what she thought was maybe a mouse, um, <laughs> all kinds of stuff like that. So she's, she's really no different than any other dog. And so that's something that I kind of like to push with people whenever they're thinking about getting a dog who's a tripod or a dog who may have those kind of physical limitations. Your dog probably isn't as sad about their circumstances as we are. It's probably a lot more sad to look at them than it is to actually live their life. Um, most dogs, whenever they are, you know, waking up from an amputation surgery or they have a big drastic change in their physical abilities that they can do, as long as you provide them safe, appropriate outlets, um, they don't really notice a huge difference and they kind of just pick up and carry on. So it's something that I like to drive home with people a lot, still treat them like a dog, still make sure that they have opportunities to do dog things, whether they're small and three-legged or they're a hundred pounds and have all four of their legs. <laughs> I know that, you know, I, I think that was interesting when you said that a lot of times people don't notice that she's a tripod because she's lower to the ground, you know, and then you're surprised maybe by some of the comments that people make and how they might be sad. And you're like, oh, well, it doesn't impact her. Like we really don't have to change much. And I think that's interesting because it's like, that's something, that's a piece of information about your dog that you have obviously experienced and taken a lot of time to digest, right? Like sometimes changes like that, she came to you like that. And yeah. that was just, that was part of her. Right. But for some people, they might have an accident or a slow developing disability where it might not be their who their dog is right off the bat. And, you know, getting that news and then having to adjust expectations to that news can be hard. By the time we as trainers see them, they likely have already done some processing. But I imagine from a veterinary standpoint, having to relay that information or having to you know, be a part of that diagnosis and then communication with the client can be challenging. Do you find Katie that people are shocked or sad or, you know, how do you generally navigate those conversations with people? 
Yeah, those conversations can definitely be really difficult, um, especially when it comes to those that are, you know, either the, the traumatic injuries, especially, um, or even if people come in, they're like, you know, my dog's been kind of off, we can't figure out what's going on. And then, you know, you run all these tests and you find like, hey, your dog has this issue and like say diabetes and it's causing them to have glaucoma or something along those lines. And then sometimes dogs end up losing their eyes from that. Um, so it's definitely a difficult conversation to have and you definitely have to be careful in how you're communicating with them because there is that, you know, that loss um, and that sadness that comes with it. Um, and I know like for me personally with my dog, she was not visually impaired as far as I could tell when I first adopted her. Um, and then we had started agility training and just kind of progressing through that. I started noticing things were off. Um, and eventually like we discovered that she had a cataract that was developing very quickly in one of her eyes. Um, and so it was kind of just, you know, at one point I was like, well, do we even continue agility training? Cause it got, you know, really frustrating to kind of figure out how to go about navigating these obstacles um, and communicating with her because she would get frustrated that she couldn't see me on one side. And then it was a whole thing. Um, but getting back to like the main question of it, it definitely, you see that disappointment almost in owners when you're having that conversation with them. But I think one of my kind of favorite parts about my job now is that I do have this experience with these dogs, but I also have the experience of seeing them through that and seeing them, you know, just blossom and flourish after, you know, figuring out new ways to work with them and continue to teach them the sports they love or, you know, hiking or anything like that. Um, so I think it's helpful that I'm able to give a little bit of hope from my own personal experience with it to some owners. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, being able to see them blossom from that can be really special, right? Whether that's your personal dogs or then seeing those dogs come back, you know, a year mm -hmm. later for their wellness exam or something like that and be able to see, oh, hey, they're doing great, you know, and, and the owner's demeanor can change. When we, when we look at our dogs blossoming, right. And we look at them really living their life to the fullest that involves a variety of things from meeting their needs physically with training and sports and exercise, and also mentally with enrichment. And I, we don't often talk about enrichment on this podcast, but I'd love to dive into that because I think that there are some differences, right? And even in our dog powered sports, when we're taking dogs out to canny hike and go bike drawing and run can across, obviously that can be a form of enrichment for the dogs that really love it and really thrive from it. But even off the trail and certainly for decompression and in our off season, it's important for us to look at enrichment and look at other options that we have to help our dogs find normal dog behaviors right? But appropriate outlets for them and, and find things for them to do. So as you're taking your own dogs out or taking clients' dogs out, talk to me about some of the enrichment that you find that dogs with certain disabilities might really enjoy, or maybe some changes that you make to your regular routine to fit each of those dogs. So for me, um, one of the things that helped with excessive barking. Um, something that can happen with deaf and blind dogs is they can uh, easily turn to compulsive behaviors to share or to show emotion or to show frustration. Um, 
And so I built a sensory garden in my backyard. And uh, so I took my backyard and I put like a sandbox in there. And then in the summertime, I put multiple kiddie pools. I collect all the sticks in one area. I have some jumps um, that I've taught my blind dogs, like where they are. And I've hung some toys from the trees so if they run into them they can jump up and get them and it made a world of difference I think the biggest thing that people at least I'm speaking for deaf and blind dogs um, and specifically deaf blind dogs I think people just think well I guess you can say this about any dog that if you have some big backyard that that that's Disneyland right like that's all you need <laughs> and so um, it is true that some deaf and blind dogs have a hard time adjusting in new environments. So to take a deaf and blind dog right into the woods might actually be a little too, too overstimulating. So creating situations in your backyard that you can mimic, like creating a fake log situation that you can get them used to jumping over before you actually go into the woods and ask them to jump over a log can be really helpful. And that's what's um, really brought in my two special needs uh, pets really has helped blossom their confidence when it comes to jumping over things, walking over things, digging, um, releasing some of that, out, some of those outlets and those zoomies in the sand and in the water. And to see them just like jump in it and get the zoomies and run around is it, it, it could make your whole day, you know? <laughs> Quick question on that with those things like obstacles that they might encounter, are those behaviors that you let them experience in that environment so it becomes normal? Or do you ever put those behaviors on cue so that you could then communicate with your dogs when you're out? Both. So I think it's important um, if you have a blind dog, a fully blind dog, they should have some type of warning cue that they're gonna run into something. Um, so for me, I go, whoop, 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 whoop. But that's because I just naturally would be like, oh, God, you know, so um, that's what just tur it turned into. Um, but it's this whole assortment of things. It's for me to establish in a controlled environment, you're pretty much going to run into something to get used to lifting their legs. Um, Katie, I don't know if you've noticed this quite yet with your dogs, but a lot of blind dogs lift their legs a little bit higher in anticipation that they're going to have to step over something. And that's good. You want them to, to kind of do that. So um, to get used to the feeling, yes. And then to teach like an over or like an up, up. Um, if you have a blind dog specifically for vocal cues, but if same with Darla, I mean, I have an up, up and a pause up and a wait. Um, but in the beginning, when they're little, it is a little bit like gentle bumper cars <laughs> so that they can map out kind of what it's like and to start to gain or strengthen that almost sixth sense of, of peripheral and spatial awareness. Um, I know that spatial awareness isn't really a sense, but I've been reading that they're kind of counting it as a sixth one. And you really should help your deaf and blind dog associate like what that is um, early on. I, I mean, I think that's huge. We talk a lot about in proprioception in this podcast and body awareness, because I mean, even for dogs without disabilities, that's hard, right? Mm -hmm. Like with our confirmation dogs, with our dog powered sports, oftentimes we're doing canine conditioning on the side, cavalettis and pause up and pivots and backups to teach them where all their limbs are, right? Because that is a challenging concept for them. And if for those of you that don't know what that is, if you can imagine like a puppy or a young teenager doing zoomies around the yard, 
their front end is powering through and it looks like their rear is just along for the ride, right? It's like swinging wide and flopping all over. And that's because they don't yet have that body awareness. So I love that idea of, you know, creating a safe place, a place that is comfortable and familiar for them with the opportunity of both enrichment and for them to build confidence with body awareness. I think that's huge. And I think that that Abby is probably something that you do quite a bit and, and Katie as well with maybe a dog that doesn't have all four limbs because that can change how they move and how they navigate obstacles as well. I will say, um, Aaron, something you said kind of sparked it with um, the cues and things that you did. So that's definitely something with Bella, my blind dog, um, that we had to navigate in agility. So most of the time in agility, people use a lot of hand cues. Um, and that's what we started with, but she just was not getting it. So she would like miss it depending on which side of her I was on. Um, and that led to a lot of frustration and like just yelling at me while we were running and us running into each other. Um, so that's one thing that I had to transition to with her is using more verbal cues um, and like slapping the side of my leg so she'd know where I was while we were running the course. Um, so it's definitely something that I've had to put into practice as well for her. So, well, Abby, talk to us a little bit more about enrichment because I know that you're really big on enrichment and environmental enrichment for them, like getting them out and, and getting them out in the world for kind of natural enrichment. So talk to us a little bit about either some of the food enrichment that you find really helpful or some of the environmental enrichment. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, obviously, because I have kind of a little bit of a different view these days on enrichment than I did whenever I was first getting into the world, I always thought that was just, you know, give your dog a stuffed Kong and call it a day, although it can be. Um, <laughs> I tend to kind of make my enrichment plans per dog to be really individualized because the dog's breed, their confidence level, their age, their physical abilities are all going to affect what is actually enjoyable and actually enriching to them versus what may just be enriching for us. Um, but I have tended to find that the vast majority of dogs, unless there are some behavioral or confidence-based barriers we have to get past first, um, the vast majority of dogs really enjoy having the autonomy to go out and just engage in dogness out in the woods, right? So that's something that I really like to push for people um, to try and do in whatever way that is safe and accessible for you. You know, some people like me, I tend to use a lot, utilize a lot of sniff spots, but that's because I have the privilege of hopping in my car and driving 40 minutes out of the city to go find myself a big property to run around in. Um, if you just, you know, take your dog into natural settings, let them express natural behavior, try to keep your, basically all of your desires and like your communications to them out of it and just let them decide how the outing is going to go. That can be incredibly enriching to a lot of dogs, especially dogs with more physical limitations that may look like, you know, having them on a long line, making sure that their equipment is safe and extra secure, um, but still giving them that opportunity to make those decisions and still have the freedom to just be a dog in ways that are important to them, right? Um, other low impact things you can do for dogs who may not be able to go out and necessarily do those high level activities. I usually do utilize a lot of food enrichment. There's um, 
a lot of ways that you can use your dog's daily calories, especially like dogs like Phoebe, where I need to kind of watch her weight to make sure that she is having the opportunity to, you know, express natural behaviors to work for her food, but we're also, you know, making sure that we're not um, overdoing that either. So there's a whole lot of factors that play into it for sure. Um, but a lot of sniffing, chewing, those kind of activities can be great low impact enriching activities for dogs. I've especially found dogs who may need lighter physical opportunities to really enjoy scent work and any kind of nose-based game, right? So that is a super accessible activity that anybody can do in their house with super basic household ingredients, um, ingredients, items. <laughs> and um, that can be a really, really great way to give your dog an outlet, especially if you have a dog that is more scent oriented, oriented than anything else. I really loved when you said go out into the out into nature and, and just let them be dogs, right? Like the dogness of it. And I think that's so important because there are so many areas of our lives that require or ask of our dogs to not be dogs. You know, and a lot of the problem behaviors that we might see from dogs uh, expressed to us by clients, right? Can be normal dog behaviors, but they're coming out in undesired ways, right? So I think that the other piece of this, which is definitely true for disabled dogs, but I think it's true for all dogs is be very observant of your dog. What does your dog enjoy? What do they want to do? And try to find more ways for them to do that. You know, so many times I'll see people walking in the neighborhood their dog stops to sniff and they just drag it along. Come on, we're out for a walk, right? Sniffing, that's so easy. So many times enrichment for me involves me putting my dog on a body harness and a long line and walking somewhere new, kind of undisturbed, not a whole lot of people and dogs. And I just follow my dog. My dog gets to sniff and sometimes they trap and sometimes they walk and sometimes they stop and watch, right? And it looks like nothing. It, and it might not be that fun for people when they first do it, but if you can appreciate how much your dog needs that and how much your dog appreciates that, you know, there's so much benefit that can be had from just watching your dog. What behaviors do they want to express and find ways that they can do that? And I think that that's super helpful for dogs. Erin, um, question for you. When you are working with dogs that might have visual impairments or auditory impairments, you know, I know you mentioned OCD behaviors coming up, um, obviously from both a medical and a training standpoint, when dogs needs are not met, right? Which one of those needs is enrichment. We can see these undesired behaviors pop up like that. Do you find that for dogs that have impairments that you have to alter enrichment at all? Because I know you didn't start right? With dogs with impairments. And now that's kind of your specialty. So how has your idea of enrichment shifted? Oh my gosh. Well, just like Abby said, I was definitely the stuff a Kong person for a long time. And I mean, I didn't need a snuffle pad didn't even exist when I was in, when I started training dogs. I mean, I'm still fairly young. I'd like to think, <laughs> but you know, I started, I went to KPA 11 years ago, you know, and I graduated 11 and snuff. I had the a terrier that a snuffle pad would have been 
awesome. Like if I could have just gone on Amazon, Amazon didn't exist either, but you know, um, it's interesting though. I think having Darla and having dogs with, um, disabilities has totally changed how, how much I value enrichment and how much I took it for granted before. You know, a walk in the woods with my dog was just bonding time. I didn't think of it as enrichment at the time. It was just something we did when I was in college and I had my dogs. But now it's like, um, if these, now I, it's one of those things that I kind of, I teach all of my clients and myself, when you have a dog, especially who can't see or hear, you kind of have to bring the world into them before that you take them out into the world because they have so much information fitting through very narrow pipes, literally, um, that I have learned from my dog hiking business before this specialty of how to bring that in and to maybe instead of if you have a dog that gets so frantic on leash and actually gets so overstimulated outside, maybe you can do find it games in the living room first. Um, maybe you can incorporate a shoebox with dirt in it to find the tree. You know, it's, you can get really, you can use oils and scents and things to really help also blossom your dog's uh, confidence. But I took, I think the short answer is I took it for granted before. I didn't, I thought it was just everyday life of things we did with our dog and and now we just need to do more of it. But with these types of dogs, you really have to, just like Abby said, I really resonated, is it's it's the individual dog. What do they need? And and if and a lot of the times I will say in the very beginning, deaf and blind dogs cannot handle just going on a, a woodsy hike. It would be way too overstimulating. You have to teach them the skills and get them used to the scent first. Um, when I did have my dog hiking business real quick, I did have a deaf and blind puppy that just wouldn't walk. It just was, it was too much. Like the, there was the, this, everything was too overstimulating. So we did a wagon for a while, like those little gardening wagons. And we would pull him in the woods on the wagon and he would just lay there and he would keep his nose up. And then we would stop and like take him out and let him walk around. And then like, it was these little incremental stages and now he hikes and he does things, but in the woods, but it really took, okay, I'm going to get you out here first. You don't have to move, like just smell things. And then why don't you take a couple steps and then I'll put you back. Like it was, I think even when he was a puppy, he was in a backpack first. It was like a whole, um, this was six years ago. So I would do things differently now, but it was a whole kind of thing of learning Sometimes enrichment is too much and you have to do what they can handle under an appropriate threshold. And I think that gradual, you know, that idea of splitting things down into small little steps and going, okay, what's like the smallest little piece that I can introduce you to? Okay, you've, you're doing well with that. What's another little piece I can add on, right? Adding that next layer on. I think that that idea applies to both enrichment and training. And when we think about kind of our adventure sports or, or our dog powered sports, there are kind of layers of that too. You know, our true dog powered sports start with, you know, our canny hiking and can across our scooter and bike drawer up to rig and sled. Right. And those are all kind of intense, but I think if we're really honest, we can look at little steps in front of that too, right? Like we can look at simply walking with our dog. Um, allowing them an outlet to pull when they want to, going on long line walks. So when you are taking your dogs out, 
what are some of those kind of gradual steps that, you know, people could be thinking about if their dog has a disability, how can we take it really slow and be safe and start off with those small baby steps to see how our dog is adjusting both physically and to this idea of adventuring as we start to kind of ramp up potentially into our dog powered sports. Yeah, I think for me personally, with my experience with my tripod, at least, um, she was pretty young when I found her and our very first, like what we started with is my sister likes to go climbing. So what we first did was we just hung out at the base of the rocks where she was climbing. And that was like her first experience into the outdoors and like just starting to work up towards stuff. And then from there, we just started going on like short little walks in our neighborhood, working up to like hikes. And then eventually we got into Canada crossing. Um, but those all just started with like, you know, letting her wear a harness and just kind of following her wherever she went, going at her pace, um, just kind of as she built those muscles because she only has three legs now. Um, and then eventually, once we'd done that for a long time, then I her up to the bike and, you know, we again, we went at her pace, um, but she just like took onto it and started pulling and just, it was something she loved. Um, but it definitely took you know, starting at, oh, let's just wear a harness and sit around and do nothing um, to just letting her like sniff and then working our way up slowly. So it's definitely a process, I think, for getting them there. Um, but most importantly, just kind of going at their pace. Yeah, I think absolutely listening to the individual dog, right? Letting them set the pace. Because again, if we have these big goals in mind or these big ideas of what we want to accomplish, Sometimes we can be so eager to get out there and do the thing that we kind of forget, you know, what is my dog mentally ready for? What are they physically ready for? Um, you know, can they handle the equipment? Can they handle the environments? Some dogs need time to just adjust to the environments. And then if we're talking about physical impairments, right? Like, are they physically ready for this speed or this distance or these obstacles on the trails? There's so many different things that we kind of have to layer in in order to get them out and about. And then of course, different sizes of dogs, right? Like our little training program might look bigger than if we had a dog that was a great Dane. Um, and age obviously can impact it too. Um, Abby, I know that you get out and go hiking quite a bit with your dogs. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, did you notice a difference between your tripod and um, your other dog that, that does have four legs? Like, was there a difference in their ability to get out and do all those things? Um, to be totally honest, not really. She, the good thing about mine is that she has, um, she's missing her hind leg. So her physical impairment is a little bit lighter than a dog who's maybe missing one of their front legs. She doesn't carry most of her weight on that back leg. She kind of just uses it as like a pogo stick. <laughs> so she um, did not really have a hard time taking to adventures, which is um, something that I was pretty surprised about. A lot of her issues that we kind of had to work through for her to be able to go on more populated trails and more, um, you know, bigger hiking adventures was more so her behavioral issues. So we do a lot of skills that uh, are helpful whenever we're kind of in a pickle on the trail, right? So she's gotten really, really good at 
skills that seem really straightforward and like a dog wouldn't need to be trained. But whenever you have a dog who um, struggles with those kind of issues, we, you know, step off to the side and she learns how to eat a treat scatter in the leaves on the side of the trail as somebody passes by. Um, a couple of things that we've worked on on the physical side of things is just starting to build her up to increasing elevations and increasing difficulties. What I have seen from her that has maybe been like a small indication of her having three legs is that inclines are pretty hard for her. Um, but beyond that, nothing really significant other than just working on those basic trail skills that especially a dog who has disabilities will probably need to be pretty skilled at if they need a little bit extra hands-on help navigating tight spaces, navigating passing people and other dogs, um, all of those kind of issues. That's definitely something I've seen with my tripod as well. Um, the inclines can be a bit of a problem sometimes. So she's a little like cattle dog mix. So she's not huge. And if we're climbing something that has some rocks or something, it's definitely, that's the one place I've seen her struggle. Um, so we've just, I've made sure I have a harness with a handle on it so I can give her a little boost in the back end. But that's definitely something that the only place really that I see her struggling. I think the nice thing too about that is that you're aware of that, right? That you as an owner are like, okay, this is hard for her. And this is where I've seen changes in her behavior um, or body language that indicate that she might be having a hard time because then it can help us either go to a rehab pro and say, hey, is there something we need to do from a fitness standpoint? Or make considerations about equipment, like a harness with a handle or make considerations about a trail. Like maybe she's better off doing something a little flatter or something that has less physical obstacles on the trail for them to navigate. Um, and Abby, I love that you brought up that mental component too, right? Because dogs can certainly just like people be limited by emotions that we're feeling. Um, and for dogs, we can see how they're feeling emotionally through body language and through behavior. If we see a dog that's struggling with reactivity, obviously that's indicative of some emotional challenges that they're experiencing. And that can obviously impact our ability to get out on the trail as well. But like you mentioned, there are things that we can work on training wise and with management, moving out of the way, allowing other dogs to pass. And I think that's a really key point as well is that with a lot of these physical limitations, you know, we can also see emotional and mental limitations or we can have a dog with no physical limitations that just has those emotional limitations. And it's always important for us to be mindful of them so that we're helping choose location and choose time of day carefully and putting in maybe the work behind the scenes with training to help set them up for success on the trail, right? Like a dog that has a lot of emotions and might have some reactivity, we might not go to the trail at the busiest part of the day. We might avoid certain trails where we know there's often dogs that are off leash. And so kind of these extra safety concerns, right, need to always be on our minds when we're going out and adventuring with our dogs. Are there, Erin, I know kind of your specialty of, of deaf and blind is a little bit different than our physical limitations. You are really dealing with a lot of those emotional components. Are there, besides kind of introducing dogs in the enrichment area, like you mentioned, kind of slowly bringing the outside world to them. How do you start getting out on adventures? Cause I know that you do with your dogs right now, go out, go for long line walks, go for hikes. How, how do you begin to decide a, are they ready to do this? 
right? And then B, how do we safely navigate those initial introductions to make sure that they're having a good time and that they're safe? I, yeah, I think I feel a little spoiled because my, my oldest can see in here and, you know, I never, I never advocate, get your dog a dog, <laughs> um, especially with deaf and blind dogs. But I will say that it is helpful to have a teacher um, that isn't you sometimes. If you have a, another dog um, that, that was I wouldn't say Dahlia necessarily held Darla's hand because we had to do some management in the beginning, um, but I think it is a bit helpful to have a doggy teacher sometimes. And if you don't, I just start off by going to the same trail every time and we take it as far as they, I think they can handle. I feel very lucky that in my personal, with my personal dogs, they were just born to be little adventurers, um, but I did take them on the same hike. I have this one hike I like to go on. It's very private. I know it, you know, I, I know it like the back of my hand and we were, ab were able, I was able to kind of see what are you, what can you handle? Because throughout the hike, it's really neat. It's a wooded part and then it's a big open field. So that can be two different things for a deaf and blind dog. You know, when you think of woods, you have to go over logs, not run into trees. Um, if there's animal poop that they go right to uh, and then the open field is kind of like when horses are a big open in a big open field I mean it can just be so much especially if the wind is going that they might just run off um, because they're following whatever scent you know that they're catching so being able to take your dog into uh, elements in which you can kind of observe, can you handle this? Can you not? And then being able to kind of have an exit strategy is my first go-to is again, like we keep kind of saying this theme of these small steps and then whatever in these beginning kind of test runs, I'm noticing, oh, okay, let's work on that at home. Let's make sure you can confidently walk over this log. Let's make sure. And just like Katie said, all my dogs will wear harnesses that have um, handles on them in case they need help. Uh, but the biggest thing that, sorry, the biggest thing that I keep going back to is just those small steps and those same, can't, you know, repeat those those smells, if you can find that trail, if you have a deaf and blind dog. Um, I do say if you were to break it apart, deaf dogs are in their own category in a sense, because I kind of joke that they're like the Terminator with like that red eye that's constantly scanning the environment. Um, deaf dogs are just, uh, especially if you have a herding breed dog, they're kind of always looking for stimulus. So for them, for deaf dogs, you might need to add extra enrichment while you're out in what you would consider to be enriching because they might be constantly looking for more. So you might have to do find it or enrichment stations or, or, or things like that to be able to keep the environment still interesting. That's the one thing I've noticed, at least with deaf dogs. I love that comment about going to the same trail and having things be predictable because oftentimes for you know, if I'm thinking of my puppy right now, um, for her novelty is the best thing, right? Like if she, she doesn't even have to do anything, but if she can just go somewhere and like watch new things and smell new things, that's, that's her favorite thing, right? That makes her happy. That is enriching for her, but for a dog that might have some disabilities or some impairments that could be really overwhelming, right? So finding 
a safe place that they can go to and build comfort, just like they can go in the backyard and build comfort, right? It's the same kinds of smells, the same kinds of obstacles. I love that idea of kind of using that to help boost confidence and, and make sure that your outings are safe. Because I think that that applies to a wide range of things too, right? Like if we're talking about dogs that might have physical disabilities, if you're working, you know, with a rehab pro and your vet team on building a fitness plan for them, what a great way to gauge how they're doing, because you can say, okay, last week, my dog started to have trouble here, right? But Hey, this week we got a lot further and look how great that went, right? So I think that's kind of a nice way too, for you to rule out some of the potentials as you can start to narrow in and say, this is working or this isn't working. And I know that patterns and things that are predictable and comforting also go really well with our emotional side of our dogs that have impairments, like our dogs that are reactive do really well with pattern games, right? They do really well with building reliable cues that they know they're comfortable with, and that can help them. Abby, I see you nodding your head here. Do you, you want to chime in on, on emotions and, and those patterns? Yes, definitely. I'm just resonating with you because that's pretty much how I navigate the world with my dog. Um, she is a lot more complicated than she seems on the surface. So that's, that's really where most of our struggles come from is on an emotional and training level more so than her, you know, physical missing leg. Um, and so that's something that I've found to be the most successful with her because probably for the rest of her life, she's getting a little bit up there. She's going to need some kind of behavioral support. She's not a, you know, straightforward reactivity case where you teach her that the dog walking by isn't going to hurt her and then she can go on with the rest of her life. Right. So she's got some various different kind of emotional issues at play and just making her life predictable has been the most successful way to help her with that. Um, especially whenever we're out about out and about in the world, a lot of things that a lot of people with, you know, very easily trainable dogs might take for granted. We have to work on a little bit harder. So even things that are as simple as I teach her a get it cue instead of handing treats directly to her mouth. And that's a great way for me to toss treats and keep walking with her whenever we're passing by something that she's struggling with. Um, and getting her to the point where, you know, she can be, this actually happened to us this morning, walking past a yard that I did not know had several dogs in it until it was too late. Um, and so, you know, she is mid reaction, the dogs on the other side of the fence are mid reaction. And the fact that I could say to her at that point, get it. And she snapped out of it and was immediately searching for the treat to catch on the ground is so not impressive on the, <laughs> the outside, right. Looking in, but for a dog like her, that is an extremely big deal. The fact that I said it one time and we did not, she didn't need any other help. She said, I know what to do now, right? Because those are things that we are really consistent in. Anytime we need to move past a dog or past a trigger, we're going to use these really specific behaviors or treat delivery tactics that are going to help her, right? Um, so that's, that's something that a lot of people may take for granted, but if you have a dog like Phoebe, it's a, it's a really, really great thing to have. Um, and so, yeah, anytime that you can make situations predictable for dogs, again, I mean, we've said this several times now about making sure that things are in small pieces and building up, but also making sure that things are predictable. So not just necessarily being like, well, I wonder what happens if I try this. And I wonder if I, what happens when I try this, right? 
going into situations with a plan on the human end and making sure to follow that consistent process every time something happens will help your dog learn how to just kind of take a breath, take a back seat and, you know, follow the predictable pattern that they know will get them through the sticky situation. Well, and to just gently piggyback off that, I love that because with blind dogs, Katie, I don't know if you feel this way. Sometimes when you're in the woods, blind dogs will love be thoroughly enjoying themselves. And all it takes is one person's voice in the distance for them to just be like, oh, you know what? Reaction. So sometimes <laughs> I will straight up be in the woods like, hey, how you doing? And I'll just like fake talk to people so that that random sound out of nowhere doesn't just all of a sudden cause this reaction and I can kind of prep my voice and even if nobody talks back <laughs> at least my dog can kind of hear the attempt of okay is something going on am I safe I, I at least know with my adolescent dog Clark right now I have to fake talk a lot and um it but it helps because by the time if I see that person in the distance on the trail I'm gonna prep myself then by the, cause then by the time they're really close to me, I've had some, he's, he's heard some talking, he's heard things go on. So it's not such a startling situation. Yeah. That's definitely been one of our biggest struggles with hiking. Um, because when we first started hiking together, you know, she still had most of her vision. Um, but then as it progressed to where she was losing more of it, it was definitely like, whenever we'd hear something off, like that immediately sets her off. Um, and so for me, what I've been doing with her at least is just doing like management with it, like either doing like food scatters or that kind of stuff in the leaves, um, just to give her brain something to do so that, you know, Hey, I'm getting this yummy food and I'm enriched while these people are going by. It's not so bad. Um, so that's definitely, Yes, 100% relate to that. That's been one of the big things <laughs> when we're hiking that we've had to figure out kind of a plan to manage. I feel like they have like supersonic hearing sometimes. Well, and it's just, it's weird because, you know, like she's not an aggressive dog at all, but she definitely becomes so fearful when she hears those voices and just immediately like drops into growling and that kind of stuff. And like, I know personally like that she would never act on those feelings but she just gets so panicked about what she can't see but what she knows is approaching her um that just finding a way to help her you know process those emotions um has been huge for her well and I think navigating that too can be really hard like all of us sitting here have a lot of experience with dogs you know in the veterinary and the training world and so while all, all professionals, you know, need help and sometimes reach out for more opinions and, you know, another eye to look in on something. A lot of these situations that we've been describing can be easier for us to identify not only that there is a problem, but then what that problem is and how to fix it or how to resolve it or how to manage it. Right. Like these are pretty complicated things that not everyone is going to know. And so I think it's always important too, to say, Hey, something's changing and I don't necessarily know what it is. I need help. Right. Because with a lot of these dogs, you know, behavior can shift from physical discomfort. We can have, you know, changes in these impairments that need medical help. Um, you know, and when we're talking about 
getting out in the world with these dogs. It requires a lot of training. It requires um, potentially some rehab work to make sure they're physically able to do this. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, as a professional in your industry and as a, an individual that owns these dogs, what are some of the outside sources that you guys have as part of your team to make sure that your dog with disabilities can navigate this world? For me, I, uh, Darla's on behavioral medication to help with just life's overstimulation. She had a, a opinion about that. Sorry. Um, um, but I would say, yeah. So what has helped me significantly is just finding a veterinarian that I trusted to help me with this kind of long-term maybe not her whole life, but at least to get her through adolescence, um, a, a behavioral medication really helped us. A low dose really made training a lot easier and made the world a lot less scary because the training made more sense and the training was able to actually sink into her system with the medication, obviously. So um, that's what helped us. And just the right equipment. Um, we talked a little bit about that in this discussion. Um, if you do have a double Merle, um, they tend to have very pink eyelids. So we do like to use goggles a lot of the times to help with any um, sunburn around her eyes. We do like to take her out on boats in the summertime. We, we take a big family vacation up to New Hampshire and we all go out on this boat pretty much all day and she comes on it, um, but she'll get so sunburned. So that has helped her kind of be able to enjoy being out there a little bit more without being uncomfortable. And um, it's interesting though, because with deaf and blind dogs, I haven't used a lot of booties because I actually want them to feel the different textures and the different surfaces. So there's also some equipment I don't use because I want, sometimes the surface is a cue for the next change in environment. So that's just, um, at least for my deaf and blind dog, those are some of the things that have helped us. I really love that you mentioned um, like medical and involvement there. Um, that's one thing being in the veterinary field that is definitely something that I've been really passionate about sharing. Um, we see a lot, a lot of behavior cases come in to our clinics. Um, and, you know, people are always like asking, you know, what can I do for this? How can I help this? And a lot of times they're just looking for a simple answer. Um, and it's, you know, oh, what meds can I give to fix this problem? And that's something that in the past few years, I've really kind of shifted my own personal view on because when I first was getting into training and stuff, I kind of, I don't know if this is, this is kind of silly of me, but I was kind of like, well, that's, that's cheating, you know, to use meds personally. I was like, you know, if you can't like make this connection with your dog and fix it without this outside help, like, what are you doing? Um, but definitely my perspective on that has changed a lot being in the industry recently, because I see that like you were saying, the meds that we're using help the dog take that breath. Like if they're say, say a human in a panic attack, you can't go about using your coping skills if you're so worked up that you can't even take a breath. So that's one thing that I've seen has been huge in my dog personally. Um, she's also on some anxiety meds um, and just in the people, clients in general is that, you know, it is okay to use those meds and they can be very beneficial. But at the same time, on the opposite end, it's frustrating to me, or it's one thing I'm super passionate about talking about with clients, is that it's not a one pill fixes everything. You know, it's a combination of 
yes, meds, but also meds. And here's what our plan is moving forward with the trainer. You know, yes, the meds will help, but they're not your solution. You have to put in the work too. So that's just been one thing that I've been talking about a lot lately um, is that combination and that you still have to put the work in, but the meds can be super helpful. Almost kind of like on another side of the coin of what Katie just said um, is also if you are, you know, a dog owner or a pet parent who is trying to figure out some kind of solution for your dog who's medically challenged or maybe both medically and behaviorally challenged, don't be afraid to advocate for your dog as well at the vet's office. And this is certainly not to say or bad mouth or anything because the things that vets go through and vet staff go through on a daily basis is just like unfathomable to me. Um, but if you ever feel like, you know, you are not really getting truly to the bottom of what's going on with your dog behaviorally and physically, or, you know, if they're going through some kind of treatment or they're recovering from some kind of traumatic injury and you feel like you need more, don't be afraid to stand up for that or, you know, seek the right vet for you. Cause there's a lot of vets that will, you know, specialize in certain things or not so much specialize in others. And just making sure that you have somebody like that, who's got your back that you can kind of go to anytime you really need it, or you notice any kind of change that you don't want to escalate any further is going to be life-changing. I've, um, I've figured that out myself coming from, you know, a vet's office where it was more so kind of on that spectrum of, it's just a, you know, it's just a little dog. They're all snappy. They all hate the vet. They all are anxious. They all have, you know, all of these kind of issues that you're seeing. It's no big deal to, you know, vets that were completely going out of their way to make sure that our visits were comfortable for my dog, that I have what I need for her on a day-to-day -day basis, whenever it comes to medical intervention and are just completely on board with me doing even like the extra testing that I want to do to make sure that there's nothing going on that she doesn't really need, but I just want to be sure because I'm a helicopter parent, right? Um, so it's really, really invaluable to find yourself a vet that you can build a really good relationship with, especially if you have a dog with disabilities. Yeah, definitely. And even, especially from kind of the inside of the industry, working as a veterinary assistant, I would say that's huge. So I, I've had the opportunity to work with many different doctors at this point. Um, and there's some that I just absolutely love, you know, we click, they're willing to work with me on everything, listen to my silly, like, oh, she has a bump on her nose this week or like a little scab, can you look at it? Like, is she fine? Um, and then there's some that, you know, you just really don't vibe with. And I think that's huge for people to realize that you can change clinics, find, you know, find a doctor that really works for you and respects what you do. Um, and especially like the clinic I was at previously, it was just like, it wasn't a bad clinic. It was just your normal clinic. Um, but I've had the recent opportunity to move to a clinic that's fear-free certified. Um, and so that's been like a huge change, just seeing like the difference in how this clinic does things and how this clinic does things and like working with the dogs more in a way that fits them best. Like, it's not saying, oh, we do things completely differently. Like medically things are pretty much the same you accomplish the same goals but hey maybe we could like send home a baggie to collect poop instead of like you know just bothering the dog for it in a way that's you know maybe freaks them out so like you know it's just it's been neat to see that there are different ways to go about getting the same answer and kind of have 
more of a respect for working with the dogs like feelings and emotions than just being like all right well we're going to get it done because we have to get it done you know so i think that's huge too because with our dogs with disabilities they're probably going to need more frequent visits than a dog that does not have anything underlying that you know goes in maybe every six months to a year right these dogs are probably going to need more frequent visits not only from your veterinary team, but from other specialists and other industry professionals. So finding somebody that you vibe with, right, that you can communicate, that listens to you is really important. And somebody who takes that time with you because you don't want your dog building those negative associations that could form from a visit that is stressful or rushed. So obviously finding a good veterinary professional, a good veterinary team to back you up, maybe even a veterinary behaviorist, depending on what is local to you. Um, finding the right equipment is essential, like Aaron mentioned, whether that's adding in something like goggles or taking something out like booties to be able to give the, that individual dog what they need. Um, you know, And then we can also look at our physical therapy side. We could look at massage. We could look at acupuncture or laser therapy if we've got physical impairments. Maybe we need to find a CCRP or a CCRT from our veterinary re rehabilitation side. So, and then of course, trainers, right? Like a lot of these dogs might also come with um, emotional involvement uh, that comes out behaviorally that needs to be addressed through a behavior modification training plan or just general training, teaching our dogs how to get out on the trails with us or teaching our dogs how to handle distractions out on the trail. So there's so many different people that might be involved. Um, and like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I will share some links in the show notes for you guys to kind of help you find those professionals that might be around you either in person or virtual. So as we're kind of talking about, you know, a variety of things and in involving our dog's emotions and enrichment needs and physical needs, are there any tips that you guys would give as a professional in your field and as an owner, right, of a dog that does have a disability? Are there any tips that you would give to our listeners to kind of help them um, with either getting out on their first adventure or kind of taking those adventures to the next level? So my big takeaway, which you guys have probably already gathered from this episode is to make sure that you are letting your dog with disabilities still be a dog in the ways that are safe and enjoyable for them, right? And to make sure that we're not overly sheltering them. While we definitely want to be careful, especially if the limitations are physical, and especially if you know your dog poses any kind of risk to themselves or anybody else, we definitely want to be careful, use management generously, and be extra careful not to you know, put them in a situation that's dangerous for them, but still make sure that if there are any kind of deficits that your dog may be missing out of, out on because of those limitations, that you're finding other ways to make up for it and to just make sure that your dog still gets to be a dog in the ways that are still enjoyable for them. I think my takeaway is the same as Abby's is just, I always joke that take it in slow steps, but don't baby them, you know, allow them to allow them to um, build their confidence, to grow some independence. Um, and if anything, if you bring home, I always say, if you bring home a dog who's deaf and blind, you bring home their breed 
before you bring home their disability. So I think the biggest, the big, one of the biggest things that uh, one of the biggest books that I always recommend is just meet your dog by Kim Brophy. I think whether your dog is disabled or not, that is going to be something that could be really helpful to helping the everyday dog guardian understand their dog a little bit more, whether they have disabilities or not. Yeah, I definitely think my echo is pretty much along the same lines as everybody else's. Um, the biggest thing I try and do, at least with my personal dogs, is that is, you know, let them set the limit themselves while also creating a safe environment for them, you know, whether it's like tools that you're using or environments that you're putting them in, just letting them be a dog and kind of explore their own limits, but also having that, you know, just those things in the back of your mind, like, hey, maybe I won't choose this trail or, you know, we won't go on this location, but um, definitely letting them kind of set the pace and explore their opportunities. And that's the biggest thing for me. I love that. Well, this episode covered a very big range of topics, but I think that's really important, right? Because when we're looking at our dogs with disabilities, they're, well, and let's be honest, any dog that we share our life with, there is no one solution. There is no cookie cutter approach, right? It's really trying to be the best dog owner you can by observing, learning how to read your dog, finding the right team around you to support you, and taking things one tiny step at a time. So ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. So until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails. Thank you.